0: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, June 9th. We begin with a look at the presence of racism in our city. We hear the personal story of a black Calgary businesswoman on what her experience has been as a resident for over 30 years.
1: Next, we look at the state of the local economy as more local businesses have opened with restrictions over the past couple of weeks. We get the latest from Sandy Blalley, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber.
0: The condition of long-term care facilities in our nation has been thrust into the headlines during the COVID-19 pandemic. We check in with Global News reporter Jill Croteau for details on her continuing investigative series, Long Term Crisis.
1: The current economic crisis due to the coronavirus is affecting a whole lot of people. We examine the impact layoffs have to both employees and businesses. We speak with a professor of human resource management who says many companies may be making some big mistakes, which could hurt business down the line.
0: And finally, it's a rite of passage for every student graduation we hear from a professor of psychology on how we can support those kids who missed out on traditional grad because of the pandemic
1: 709 sandra buchard has owned one-on-one personal fitness in calgary for more than 30 years as a woman of color she has encountered racism in our city and felt she simply had to attend the black lives matter protest in downtown calgary last week she joins us now hi sandra Good morning, Sue. Hey, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Tell us why you went to the protest last week.
2: Sue, I'm not an activist, but what I am is a mother. I'm a black mother with two half-black boys, and my spouse is white. And for the first time in my life, I felt compelled to stand up. Uh, I saw uh, what happened to George Floyd, and... I could not believe that a a police officer would kneel on his neck and just snuff his life out. And so I felt compelled to stand up.
0: Tell us about your experience, Sandra, in the rally. Uh, How did it feel? Give us an idea of the ambiance of having those many people around you uh, with one uh, common cause. How did that feel?
2: It was overwhelming um, to be there, you know, I haven't allowed myself to cry, and I think it's because I have not allowed myself to actually watch the video uh, in full as to what happened to George Floyd. It's it's too much to take in, and so being at the rally or the riot um, or protest and 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 hearing and seeing you know what was going on, it, it was pretty sad and overwhelming that that's taking place
1: still in 2020 Mm -hmm. you've been a a businesswoman in calgary for 30 plus years when you opened your fitness studio i'm sure first of all even in in the business that you're in now or just in general there weren't a lot of black people in the city of calgary it's not what you'd call (laughs) a giant melting pot so have you experienced racism here in this city uh, I have,
2: Sue. In particular, I want most white people to realize that they have a privilege that's built in. So, for example, if I go with my career, there's some unconscious bias. My last name is Bukert and I once had a German woman call, speak with me over the phone. And when she showed up in the studio and realized I was black, she said, "Bukert." Bukers, no good German marries black mm. and she walked out on me. Wow. And so for years, I've been choking down all these racial issues, racist issues that have happened. and this moment in time, I just feel the need to speak about
0: it well, that that is one incredible story and uh, you know that's super overt, but is it generally incidents like that happening. Uh, frequently or is it just kind of under the, uh, the, the kind of the undercurrents that, that, that you've witnessed?
2: Well, Andrew, just speaking about white, uh, white privilege, just going back, there was a time in the city of Calgary that as a black woman, I could walk into a drugstore and not find makeup for my skin color. Mm-hmm. I could not find hair products for a black woman. And it's as if the white buyers didn't realize minorities or women of color were within our city. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been shopping in a high-end store and had um, a a customer hand me their shoes and say, I'll have these in an eight. Assuming
1: that you work there.
2: uh, Yeah, assuming that I work there in a store filled with white male-female shoppers I was shopping while black, Sue. (laughs) How dare you, Sandra? (laughs) How dare me? And it was me that she singled out as the help. Wow. And so white people don't realize that just the skin color that they have gives them a built-in advantage when they go into certain situations. Um, May I highlight another situation? Um, A white person doesn't have to think twice when they hop into their car. But a Washington Post study showed that of 20 million traffic stops, a black person is twice as likely to be pulled over. A black person compared to a white person is four times more likely to be searched. And unarmed and not attacking anyone, a black person is more likely to die by a police officer. Wow. It's that's, why, that's why Black Lives Matter is, is such a significant statement. Whites don't realize that all lives have not been held in equality. Mm-hmm. And it's time we step up and,
1: and, and join in and say enough is enough. I'm looking at the text line and someone's texting right now. BS. If there was bias against blacks, she would not be able to build a business in a mostly white city. I mean, we're still, you still get texts and people saying (laughs) ridiculous things like that. So why is it important when when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, why is it important and insensitive for people to say, oh, don't be ridiculous, all lives matter?
2: Well, just for some of those examples of hopping into a car. A white person doesn't have to climb into, doesn't have to worry about the color of their skin when they climb into a car after dark and go for a drive. They, they don't. But a black person has to be concerned about those things. Um, I wanted to just say it's interesting that she thinks I couldn't build up a business in this city, um, that there is no racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is ridiculous, Sue. It speaks I volumes. Business, yeah, through perseverance, dedication, and for people that are willing to just get out there and mm-hmm. see me as other than the color of my skin. Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm wondering, your you, business has been 30 years for you here, Sandra. Are you how long? How, how many years have you been in Calgary? Is it been 30 or, or over?
2: Uh, over 30 years. Um, over 30 years. Okay. I, I really do want people to. Step back a little bit, please. Mm -hmm. Not just focus on the looting or the fact that George Floyd passed a counterfeit bill. Let's look deeper. Mm -hmm. A police officer knelt on his neck and snuffed the life out of him in front of three other police officers. Please, this is a moment for conscious awakening. I know that racism isn't a comfortable discussion. But it's time for us to start speaking and look at, let's give it the sniff test. Where in our own lives might we be unconsciously biased?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, have you seen in what I was getting at with the 30 years, uh, is, it, is, is does the environment in Calgary feel the same as it has over the past 30 years, or does it seem like we are improving as a city uh, for somebody of color?
2: You know, it's not, I think it's gotten better but i think what i would say to this is that Mm -hmm. canadians are more polite when it comes to racism it's here but we are more polite and um that doesn't make it any less hurtful Mm -hmm.
1: well it's time everybody pays attention listens up we can all learn from each other and we need to stand together on this one thanks so much for joining us sandra Thank you so much for asking. Appreciate your time. Sandra Buchert, owner of One-on-One Personal Fitness here
0: in Calgary. Many more Calgary businesses have officially phased in their reopening plans, and phase two is just around the corner. With reaction from the business perspective, we're joined by Sandeep Lali, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, who we've been fortunate, fortunate enough to have on over the past few weeks during the pandemic. Good morning to you, Sandeep.
2: Good morning, Andrew.
0: Let's talk about this. And I was, I was saying earlier in the program, it was a, a big weekend for me. Uh, we, uh, My wife and I, we went out for dinner. First time since, uh, well, early March, I think. And I had my first haircut. So I'm taking advantage <laughs> of what I can. I'm wondering what you're hearing from local businesses. Are they seeing a bump, uh, those who have been able to open up with restrictions?
2: The pent-up demand is definitely um, you know ready to go. It, what we've heard from the business community that did open, you know, May 14th and the 25th, um, with a few weeks here behind them, is, you know, it's slow and steady. So the restrictions on, um, you know, 50% capacity and things like that, those are definitely impacting even on the revenues that they had projected to come in. They're about 10. They're running about 10% less than where they thought they might be on the reduced incomes but it is one of those ones where it's word of mouth right you sharing your story that you know I was comfortable this happened um and then other people doing the same thing but the pent-up demand on things like haircuts um and uh, a draft beer those those (laughs) folks are definitely walking in.
1: Everybody's cheering you right now haircuts and draft beer. Um, (laughs) Curious Sandeep do you know in terms of you know how many businesses were able to open up in this phase but have not they've decided to wait it out a little longer
2: yeah we do have some numbers on that um with respect to not rushing to return to work um and to open really definitely on the slow and steady side of it so from the phone calls that we've been making our team you know as, as as you guys know and everyone knows we've been on the phone since march 15 engaging every day and so what we've heard is that you go first and I'll follow. And so that's where, that's where some of this is. So if you're a larger restaurant, um, you know, chain or some local where you can do sort of boutique hours, you're taking the, taking the chance. But over these last two weeks, really, it hasn't been enough time. So as we go into these next weekends, um, that's when we're going to know. And we're really watching towards the end of June to say, are you know are how did you do are you opening or you know how did that go and there's a survey that we're part of um with the Alberta Chamber that's out there right now for for us to gather some more data on that.
0: The date on the calendar presented by the province was June 19th for the next phase, but we've been teased that that might be bumped earlier and teased also that we might have some more goodies included on what can open up uh, uh, in that next phase, which again might be earlier. What have you heard from the Calgary uh, Chamber perspective?
2: Yeah, so from the business perspective, it really is those stage two businesses are things like the aesthetics and um, manicures and those kinds of treatments. People are really you know, wanting massage and things like this. And so that's really what's in that that's going to impact business. You know, there's include, there would be, you know, surgeries can come back on K to 12 schools. That's why we're hearing a lot about schools. And so what we're hearing on that perspective from the business side is about obviously daycare and how do we get, you know, if we're both working, how does, how's this going to to function, and and so that's why you're hearing about the schools. But stage two really doesn't have a lot more in it from a business perspective. You've got potentially it still says you know stage two gyms are still closed and things like that. So unless you're pulling that from stage three, um, and increasing your gatherings, and potentially reducing capacity constraints, you know. But it's those are the things we're looking for from a from a business perspective on stage two. But you know everything we. Hear from all the business owners. It's, it's got to be cautious. Nothing has changed on the pandemic side of things, you know. So health is first and foremost, even now, because more of us are consuming. So let's be more vi- vi- vigilant with all of that. And so that's that's what we're hearing. But the other piece of it is um, there is a worry for the for Calgary's economy, and to make sure that you know as these government programs you know the commercial rent program that was very clunky uh we've heard that a few times more than a few times uh so how do those things now help us move to recovery versus stabilization and the debt load that i've got on my business so many questions
1: still and you know we didn't even talk about the hotel industry so definitely we touch on that next week sandeep i know there are a lot of businesses still waiting to see what happens and waiting to open so thank you for joining us every week with the update
2: yeah, thank you, Sue. And yeah, I look forward to talking about that experience economy. It's, it's definitely one that we all need to pay attention to. Absolutely. you are not uh, allowed to travel outside the province, right? Yep, for
1: sure. Okay, thanks, Sandeep. Appreciate thank your time you. with this morning. That's Sandeep Lally, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. The mm. series is called Long-Term Crisis, put together by global news reporter Jill Croteau, who joins us. Hi, Jill. Good morning. It's a five-part series. We talked to you yesterday about this one. Part two going tonight. Uh, Can you give us a little... So first one was on the anxiety and mental state of folks going into potentially long-term care homes. What are you focusing on
3: tonight? Well, tonight is really what recourse the families have. If you have a loved one... parent or a grandparent that's existing in long-term care right now what can you do if you're not happy with the state of the home and there are a lot of things that you really have to dig for that we talk to people who had some real success you can engage the public health advocate you can look at the protection for persons in care which is a law that allows families to really report allegations of abuse or wrongdoing and uh, I mean that's the thing there's a real heavy burden and responsibility on people mm-hmm. to do their own homework and really find out the history of these homes and find out what are some of the deficiencies. So tonight is really talking about, okay, what, what are your options? You can either engage these things, those things that I just talked about, mm-hmm. you could certainly pursue a lawsuit, which some people have done, but really there needs to be a full-blown public inquiry into looking at the whole system and, and really just overhauling
0: it. Jill, did you get the sense that some families that may not have uh, spoken up unhappy with care uh, even like six months ago are now stepping forward with any concerns they may have?
3: Absolutely. I mean, this is a system that has been completely under pressure and under stress, and it's now showing the cracks because of what the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light. And a lot of these people say, you know, I was on the fence. I felt like it was okay. But really what the pandemic has done is really shone a massive spotlight on this issue and people are now feeling more validated to speak out about it than ever before
1: jill as you were digging into this issue i mean it was heartbreaking to hear about it just in general but as you're looking really much deeper than the rest of us how did it make you feel personally
3: scared i mean to 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 put it bluntly um i'm I, i i I really worry about when I'm going to have to come to that crossroads and and have those conversations with my parents, or even for me myself. I want there to be a better system, and I think that there is a way, and I think that now is the time to seize this opportunity, because if we don't take this opportunity now, I don't think we ever
0: will. Thanks for your time this morning, Mm -hmm. Jill. Thank you. That is Global News reporter Jill Croteau. Part two of her series, Long-Term Crisis, tonight on Global News. 608 on the morning news, given the prevalence of layoffs and the impact of layoff decisions on business recovery efforts, it's troubling that most companies don't have a policy in place to guide how layoff decisions are made. With advice to help businesses make an informed approach to layoffs, we're joined by Associate Professor Human Resource Management and Business Consulting at the University of Guelph, Nita Chinzer. Good morning, Nita.
4: Good morning. How are you
0: doing? Good. Well, you know, aside from the, the, the bottom line here, which would be the bottom line, uh, and, uh, you know, finding out how many, you know, um, uh, positions have to be eliminated to stay afloat as a business, that's the reality these days, what sorts of uh, thoughts should go in, uh, you know, to the mix when it comes to making these decisions?
4: Definitely. So without a policy in place, a lot of employers are actually choosing to engage in this thing called voluntary layoffs. Sometimes they're referred to as buyouts, sometimes they're given other names, but essentially they're asking the employees who wants to volunteer to leave. And in this case, what we're doing is we're really disabling the organization from having a choice about who leaves. And surprisingly, it's the stars who are saying, you know what, I'm really good at my job. I'll take your severance package. I'll take the money that I'm owed and I can find a job tomorrow. In that typical economy, that's what we would see. In this type of economy, we're seeing companies like Manitoba Hydro and the Department of Defense going out and asking for voluntary layoffs, and employees are much more hesitant now to volunteer. So it'll be interesting to see if voluntary layoffs continue to be used or if they should be dumped altogether
1: and and we you know a lot of people i was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday on temporary layoff and that oh, only oh. lasts for a certain amount of time and then companies have to make a decision i think is it 120 days or something and then they have That's to a make tough. a decision and and most of these companies have never been in this position before and don't really know what they should be doing it seems you know
4: i've had i've had conversations cheerful
1: conversations with managers who were like i don't want
4: to do this i don't want to have to decide what three employees out of my 12 will be cut and will go home without a job. These are my friends. These are my coworkers. I respect them. I, my job is to provide for them. And we've been seeing that. But you're right. With the period of temporary layoffs coming to an end in 120 days, which is quite soon, mm-hmm. employers are going to have to start making those hard decisions. And the way that they execute the layoffs is just as important as who they choose to lay off.
0: So when you say the voluntary packages that are being offered up, perhaps, could we almost equate that to the lazy way in that the management, A, doesn't have a plan and B, doesn't want to take the time?
4: I will have to agree with you on that. They're saying management is saying, oh, this is more humane. We're empowering the employee. Employees come to work because they're looking for job security, because they're looking for meaningful work to do, because they need a paycheck. You're not empowering someone to become unemployed. All you're doing is forcing them to look to their neighbor, look to themselves, feel the guilt that they didn't volunteer if they stay. And if they do volunteer, take that pain home to their family. I agree with you 100%. It's a lazy way to do. It's a lazy, non-strategic way to do layoffs that tomorrow can actually hurt the company because the wrong people end up leaving.
1: Nita what what should companies do? what would be a better decision? I know the article that you know you were quoted in you talk about a couple of recent Canadian studies that offer advice to help businesses make a better informed approach to the layoff so what's what is your suggestion here?
4: Uh, The suggestion is hopefully they have a strong performance management program so they at least know who their strong performers are and who their weak performers are. One of the primary decisions an employer should do would actually be to use the layoff to eliminate the weak performer. If I have 10 people and I keep the strongest five, then in that case I can help the company rebound Mm -hmm. as opposed to keeping the weakest five. Another idea is that we can actually go and ask people what kind of skills do they have and think about what we need in the future. So when we're laying off, we're actually laying off people who are actually a skills mismatch. So we're going based on what the company needs to survive the best in the future. Once these companies go down, if I have to cut 30% of my workforce tomorrow or the day after, I want to ensure that the remaining 70 still have a job three months or 10 months down the road. So keeping the strongest of the workforce would be in my best interest and the employee's best interest
0: the article that you you speak to these uh, you know uh, the different points in the conversation.com also chronicles uh, you know the messaging when a when a company steps forward to make these cuts is very important as to why they you know have, have, have chosen this direction to not only shareholders but to the public so do you find that a lot of the companies are mismanaging their messaging following something like this
4: Yes, definitely. So communication is one of the key roles of the top management team, including the CEO. And when it comes time to, uh, to execute a layoff, some companies are actually shifting blame to external factors and taking none of the blame themselves. Others are taking all of the blame. Some companies are pretending that a layoff's not even negative. They're saying we're doing right sizing. We're doing restructuring. We're doing workforce reengineering. And they're coming up with these really flowery terms that try to position it positively And what some of the research that was done at the University of Guelph by myself and a colleague has found is that when those are actually being used, so when we're being disingenuous, when we're pretending that we're not actually executing a layoff, stakeholders can see through that and they punish us for that with a higher drop, in, with a greater drop in our stock prices. When we say we apologize for the layoff, it was our mistake. We should have done something differently. Stakeholders, again, punish us because we failed as managers to fulfill our obligations to our workforce. However, when we use excuses and justifications, then they don't really, you know, they understand that it's this idea that something bad happened in the environment around us. This is a reactive type of downsizing. We're trying to do better. And that messaging seems to be more acceptable to our audience.
1: Nita, can we flip this around, say, for the employees who are listening to this interview? Is there something they can do going forward? Can they go to their bosses, their managers, and say, hey, I'm the one that should be kept if, if there's any decision to be made? 100%. So um,
4: what we could do as employer, employees is when the decisions get made, we need to start asking about what are the eligibility criteria. We need to start looking at if our employers are being genuine or not. Are they using terms like right-sizing? Are they masking the downsizing of something else? And in that case, we need to start holding our employers more accountable for telling the truth and asking them, what's really going on here? What are you trying to do? Um, we also need to think about asking our employers to um, be very clear about their decision rules. So when they're launching voluntary layoffs, if one or two employees start to ask, wait, what are the eligibility criteria? The company might not even have thought of it. And now we're asking them so they'll go and figure it out and come back to us
0: with that, hopefully. Okay, so one more uh, point here. Obviously, we're talking on both sides, the employers and the employee. If I'm an employee and I've been offered a package, what are some of the things I should take into consideration when it comes to uh, you know formulating my decision of whether or not it's time to leave and, and you get some some bucks from the company or, or stick it out? What, what do I look at?
4: Definitely, so obviously the value of the package is the number one influencer. So the bigger the package, statistically speaking, the more likely we are to actually think about accepting it. Sure. So sometimes they'll actually try to incentivize us to exit by giving us a massive severance package that may be six months or twelve months worth of pay. What we need to do as employees and stop is and forecast in our industry with our given skill set, do we think that we would be employable six months or twelve months down the road? Do we think that we are quite active on the labor market? Some industries, for example, IT, security, um, anything to do with online environments, those are still hiring. HR, in fact, is still hiring because those are quite in demand right now. Other industries, we're not hiring in much at all, like accommodation and food services or tourism. So depending on the industry we belong to as well, we might not see our possibility of getting um, re-employed as high. So we'd reduce our likelihood to volunteer. Another factor that comes in often is people consider family size. So do you have a spouse at home? Do you have someone you're caring for at home, dependent children? And often, if you've got a two-income family, one of you may choose to take the package today, go back to school, reskill, do something that you wanted to do, and use this opportunity as bought time.
0: In other
1: cases, you might say, no, I don't want to bring that risk home to my family. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very personal choice with all those factors. Important decision for sure. A great topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning, Nita. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. That's Nita Chinzer, Associate Professor, Department of Management at the University of Guelph.
0: 909 on the morning news. Change is stressful for all of us, for young adults who are about to embark on a new chapter in their lives. Finding the disruption in normal life events are particularly stressful to them. We're joined by Associate Professor of Psychology and Clinical Director, Regional Assessment and Resource Center, Queen's University, Ontario, Alison Harrison. Uh, good morning to you, Alison. Good morning. Uh, what is the first step and, and could it be a case of us being old fogies and not realizing <laughs> how important putting a cap on high school was and, uh, and graduation is?
2: Well, we probably are old folkies.
5: Um, <laughs> but, you know what, it, it is, you know, whether you put a cap on your head or you just walk down, you know, the, up the aisle and get your, your diploma, um, it's a milestone, it's it's a marker, it's a way to sort of say, okay, I've graduated from being a teen and now I'm going on to be an adult. And uh, for a lot of the students out there, they're they're missing out on that this year. But but more than just that, they're missing out on all the things they've worked for all through high school you know, that they were going to go off to the offset track and field meet or they were going to, you know, do something else. They were going to get a summer job that was going to help them pay for things. Those are all things that are stuck. And now most of them uh, have been told, guess what? You get to do first year sitting in your same room at your same computer that you yeah. spent your whole high school at. Mm-hmm. Difficult for sure. I mean, just even the
1: you know the, the finalizing it, and saying goodbye to the sure. teachers and your friends and moving on. I mean, they just they they didn't get to you know complete that circle. So so what can we do for them, and, and what should we be aware of as as parents and, and teachers, perhaps too?
5: Yeah, great question. So I think uh, one of the big things that the advice I give to parents is don't just feel like you've got to jump in and fix things for them right now. Um, I mean, you're allowed to feel. Sad. You're allowed to feel like you missed out on these things. And let them find a way, you know, if they need you, they they'll let them to come and ask, you know, I need your help with this. But the other thing that, that I think we all can do is figure out some way to either, you know, set up a party for the future or have a Zoom conference meeting where you get all the people who've meant a great deal to them, uh, their teachers, their friends, um, and give speeches. Oh, uh, we spend mm-hmm. so much time... And we never, you know, very rarely in life do we tell people what they really meant to us and how we feel about them. And so having that opportunity to hear from all the people who are really important in your life what they've meant to you and what your achievements really have have meant for them can be a huge thing for students right now. Um, So I think that's a really good one. The other thing, too, is that we see at the college and university sector now, we see a lot of students coming in who who don't necessarily have the best um, resiliency skills for coping with stress and difficulties. And and I keep saying, you know, this can be a, a milestone marker for you to say, well, geez, I, I survived COVID and everything that was that. So is this as bad as it was when we were all locked up in COVID? And if it isn't, well, I, I'm pretty sure I can survive that too. Um, and I think also just learning some strategies to help you prepare for going on this coming year helping students to figure out things like uh all right so now I have to be responsible for my own time no one's going to be telling me this wow this is a great time to learn how to do that now rather than when October comes and I realize I haven't done any studying
0: maybe not even uh you know a case of saying okay you've missed out on that but the positives of those maybe new skills they've learned uh from taking on the last part of their education online and how they can transfer those into the future
5: Absolutely. I mean, and those are all skills that, that uh, all of us are now discovering you really need to when we have to work from home, that you really have to learn how to organize your own day and your own time and um, not get distracted by, by things on the Internet or all the other electronic media. Um, so those are good skills to start saying, great, I've got a chance to practice those now, so I'll be better prepared come, uh, mm-hmm. come the fall.
1: Could it be as simple as you know, maybe journaling and, and writing down your experiences, good and bad? Maybe you know the yardstick for students, you know what we've done that was successful, what I missed out on and and just sometimes writing it down can can help to get it out and and make you feel like maybe you've you've come full circle,
5: yeah, well, perfect point. it It really is. um and and two, those are skills that you can transfer over to the rest of your life mm-hmm. when you start you you get into any situation where you're stressed or you're anxious, you don't know how to cope. Learning how to journal and say, okay, well, what are the positives I learned? What are the negatives? What are the pros and cons? Um, And even just learning things as simple as as learning how to manage your own anxiety, learning strategies like breathing or finding uh, good websites that can help you with mindfulness meditation or using worry lists. Uh, I get lots of students to use worry lists where you're only allowed at a certain time of day. You sit down and you look at all the worries you've written down all day, and that's when you get to brood on them. Mm-hmm. but it's, you, you help limit how much time you're allowed to actually right. spend. Worrying. So it's not constant worry. Yeah. That's right. It's just, okay, sure. Yep, they're all valid worries. I've got an appointment with you at 5 o'clock. Let's sit down, go over the list, make a, make a plan for what we're going to do about those things. I like mm-hmm. it. I, I say to students, it's a bit like if you've already written down your grocery list, you don't spend the whole day worrying about what's on your list. Yeah. But if you don't have it written down, you keep going, oh, shoot, I know there were three things I needed. Exactly. What were and you sure. stress
0: over yeah. it, for sure. sure. sure Absolutely. You worry a lot when you're in the milk aisle and you can't remember what you went to <laughs> the store for. Let's talk well, about yes. the double-edged sword that is online learning because that's where they're getting their schooling from. But how about limiting uh, their online consumption uh, at this point as well? Like, you know, kind of putting a cap on this is school, now interact with others.
5: Yeah, yeah. And one of the the big issues that that we see um, when students come in for for academic help with us at the post-secondary level is they say, oh, I I spend so much time, like I really, I wanted to to study, uh, but then I got distracted, I was on my phone, I was surfing or I was watching videos or I was on, you know, whatever. Um, So learning how to limit that consumption too, and, and I've had lots of students who have great success actually installing apps on their computers or their phones or whatever, that uh, only let them go on once every hour for 10 minutes and then shut it down or say I'm only allowed to go on these sites after X time. Great ideas. They're all, they're all habits. Yeah. Like they're, they're habits you can put in.
1: And, and we can put them all into play. And it's a great reminder that, you know, we need to, we need to talk to our kids, whatever whether they're graduating from grade 7 or grade 12. You yep. know, talk to them, let them, you know, get it out, and, then, and maybe write it down. That is a helpful idea. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time, Allison. You're more than welcome. Take care. You too. That's Alison Harrison, Associate Prof of Psychology, Clinical Director as well, Regional Assessment and Resource Centre at Queen's University.
0: We're going to be having a graduation party at our house this I know. week.
1: For- what, you're, you're, how old is she? Grade 9. Grade 9. Grade yes. 9 students. So that, and, and that's another one, right? Grade, grade 7, grade 9, grade 12, they all are important to the kids. Yeah. And to be able to honor your daughter, I think, is a really fun idea.
0: And my first point to Allison is, you know, for us it's oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah, maybe for you, because it's been 30 years, it's yeah, not a big deal. It's, to them it is. But that was what they've been worked particularly grade 12. It's mm-hmm. a real kick in the pants to say, okay, it's over, and not have that closure. And I know a lot of the schools, we've talked about this, are doing some drive-through graduations or ceremonies in a field, if you will, even. Uh, But hopefully they get the chance to recognize these students a little further down the line in some fashion, for
1: sure. Talk to them, hear them, Mm -hmm. acknowledge them, and uh, have a great party, a great celebration, even though they might not be able to do it the traditional way, right? We'll try to embarrass her, for sure. Excellent. That's what parents are for.